Improving soil health doesn't happen overnight, but it's amazing how a series of changes, however small, compounded over time, can really make a difference. I think we should be building soil and the things that we're doing today, I think we're building rather than uh, even maintaining, uh, we're, we're actually improving soil. Dad wasn't the first to say it, but I asked him when I bought the farm, what any, any last minute uh, recommendation, he said, just leave it in better shape than what you got it. And, and today the farm is the most, most productive it's ever been, the best shape it's ever been. And I think that's because of some of the things that we've been doing over the years. Today, we talked to Ohio farmer Fred Yoder about those things he's been implementing over the past four decades to improve his soil health and what he's experienced firsthand that he wants to make sure farmers everywhere get to experience as well. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning into Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hamrich. Joining me, of course, is my co-host, Dr. Abby Wick, and we're sitting down today with Ohio farmer Fred Yoder. Fred's a fourth-generation farmer who has lived and farmed near Plain City, Ohio, for over 40 years. Along with his wife, Debbie, and his two children, they grow corn, soybeans, and wheat, as well as a ton of cover crops. He's also operated a retail farm business for over 36 years and sells seed and other technology products to farmers. Fred's also a founding board member and now co-chair of Solutions from the Land, a nonprofit that explores integrated land management solutions to help meet food security, economic development, climate change, and conservation of biodiversity goals. And he's the chair of the North American Climate Smart Agriculture Alliance, representing all factions of production agriculture and working to ensure that farmer-to-farmer education and economics will be the driving force to adapting to feeding the world while dealing with a changing climate. I asked Fred if he'd start our conversation off by just sharing a little bit about what started his initial interest in building soil health on his farm. You know, I, I as a lad, as a, as a guy that was growing up, I saw things on the farm that, that really concerned me. We were one of those uh, farmers that we did a lot of uh, mobile plowing and tillage, and we'd spend hours and hours out there, you know, and and I noticed that we had a, a piece of, of land that was never farmed. It was in uh, pasture. And uh, we finally uh, took the fence rows out when we got rid of the cows and, and plowed that. And the land that we've been plowing beside it has been was hard and crusty and, and not full of life. And in five years, we ruined the land that we were, that had previously not been uh, farmed. And it was, I thought, we have got to be doing something wrong. And that's when I got into soil health and how do we how do we enhance soil health instead of, you know, and then then we get into the whole thing of, well, um, you know, we're losing 25 tons of, of uh, soil per acre per year. And I'm thinking then we cut it down. To, we're only losing five now. And I'm thinking, why should we lose anything? And so then that that sort of got me into the more of the regenerative aspect of it. And I think we should be building soil and the things that we're doing today, I think we're building rather than uh, even maintaining, uh, we're, we're actually improving soil. And I said this many times, you know, and Dad wasn't the first to say it, but I asked him when I bought the farm, what any, any last minute uh, recommendation? He said, just leave it in better shape than what you got it. 
and today the farm is the most most productive it's ever been, the best shape it's ever been. And I think that's because of some of the things that we've been doing over the years. And I'd love to go back to that side by side where you where you saw that newly plowed up prairie next to your fields. And what was the first step that you took when you noticed that to start your journey in soil health? Well, back then the 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 thought was, you know, you have to till deep to make sure that you know you get air and water to the uh, the things you're growing. But uh, unfortunately, the more you uh, you till, the more uh, you lose of your organic matter. And this land that was right beside it, which had never been tilled, never been farmed, it was just pasture. Uh, it was the same soil type. I guess that was the main thing that I saw. It was a lighter soil, you know, more of a clay type of soil, but it was it was fluffy and mutt and lush, and it was the grass was beautiful. It didn't take five years for it to look just like the rest of the field. And I'm thinking, what did I do? And I knew that something was wrong. And I thought, we have to find a better way to do it. And originally, when I got into uh, no-till, and I've been no-tilling for many years, it was more out of economics than it was to uh, to be um, really, really changing the soil. I mean, it was a combination of both, but it was really mainly on, I, I wasn't making any money back in the 80s and 90s when, when things were really tough. And so I, for economic reasons, I switched to no-till. But today, I... I would never go back to farming like we, we did before, simply because we've we've noticed the the new resilience that we have now. We, you know, I you know we've had some tough times. You know, we had a real dry year in in 1988, which everyone uh, suffered, and then 2012 was another dry year. But yet we had near normal yields, and I really attribute that to the fact that we were raising cover crops and no till, and uh, we had more resilience in those acres. They was able to take some of that uh, adverse weather rather than uh, and the reserves. You know, we always use the rule of thumb that uh, you know every one percent of organic matter represents the ability to to hold an extra twenty five thousand gallon of water. So that works when it's dry because you got a reserve there, but it also works when it's wet. So when you get a big goose drowner, uh, it that water doesn't run off the top and cut those ditches and and things like that. It, it soaks in. So. I think organic matter and, and carbon is, is the value of of what really makes the resilience go. And so I look at my soil as my, my 401k. You won't get uh, instant gratification from it. And, and some bankers really have a hard time understanding that because you, you take, a, you know, they look at an operating loan they want to return on, you know, in, in 90 days or 120 days. What they, they have to be convinced of is the, the fact if you invest in some of these practices that it'll pay dividends later on down the road. In the first couple of years, you have to actually have to get your, your soils conditioned for less tillage and uh, for cover crops and things like that. So you go through it, you give me a farmer for three to five years and I'll have him for life because once you go through that transitional change, uh, then all of a sudden it supports itself. I was saying, I'm, I'm picking up on this theme of patience here. Um, sounds like patience with planting time. Patience with speed of planting, patience with the soil transformation process, maybe patience with yourself and others. Are are there other areas in, in soil health that you need to be patient as you go through this process? Well, I think it's uh, not only patience, but I mean, the biggest thing is you have to wait till it's fit. The worst thing you can see is, is a jackrabbit farmer right beside you, or I call them turbo farmers, that is out there before you and you, you can swear up and down, you're not going to get in the field, but you see him working and think, well, I better go too. But you have to wait until the soil tells you it's right. You can use the argument, well, if you're, if you're no-till, look at the, the time you're saving by not having that big tractor with the, you know, the field cultivator or whatever. 
and the fuel is taken in the the iron you're burning up uh, so you can you can afford to wait until it's fit because it's so much quicker i mean I've, I've told the story that, you know, when I was growing up farming with my father, uh, we'd plant from May 1st until the end of June, two months. And today, uh, you know, we got 10 days to two weeks window to, if, to get optimum yields. And so you have to figure out a way to either increase the, the size of your planter or uh, just really hit it hard, you know, maybe even plant around the clock. And so that's what we've done is and we've like I said before, we're, we're precision planter dealers. And so we, we, we got our planter equipped where I've got complete confidence of, of planting after dark where that I'm, I'm doing that because it's reading out. If, if the seed soil contact is not uh, acting properly, it'll tell me. If the downforce isn't proper and I'm, you know, it's go through a rough time, it'll tell me. So I actually feel more confident today with the technology than I was clear back then. Back then when we didn't have the, the sophisticated equipment, it was more of a, it was a real management thing. You got off your tractor and you, you, you dug up with your your knife and you saw what it was doing, and you really had to pay attention. And, and it, you you may have your planter set different in the morning than you did in the afternoon, so you really had to pay attention to what you were doing. Half the problems that, that farmers have when you have uneven emergence is just not getting it in the moisture. So you always have to make sure that that you have good seed to soil contact and make sure you hit it in moisture. But again, that takes patience, and and you also have to pay attention to details. Yeah, so. I've got people that say that they, they, they always plant when the, they use the, the, their index finger. That's the depth I plant. Well, that's not very scientific, but, you know, okay, that's about an inch and a half. But then there's times you've got to go to the inch and three quarter or maybe even two inches. I mean, but you have to judge it by, by what you're, you're dealing with. If the moisture is not there and you want to plant, don't, don't ever plant it in dry dirt if you, if you can avoid it because stuff will not grow in dry dirt. You have to have moisture. This past year, we were lucky. Uh, we were actually wet, pretty wet in, in April. Then we didn't get to start planting until, like, I think May 8th. And then it never rained again uh, until uh, June the 6th, I think. It was the next time. But that was actually a really good thing because we, we planted everything in the moisture. And it all came up without any kind of, uh, of uh, crust or anything like that. So we probably have the best stands we've ever had when it comes to, uh, to plant population. But it comes from just, you know, working with Mother Nature rather than against her. Every farmer that I know of, when it's starting to rain, you think, well, I got to get that last round in, you know, in the rain. And most of the time you always replant that. We know when they're calling for rain or if it's starting to rain, they get the heck out of the field. But uh, most farmers will want to finish that field, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, even though it's wrong, it'll grow anyway. Well, most of the time it doesn't. So you have to really just really understand and, and really hone down on that little relationship between the seed and the, and the soil and how, how best to make a, the best seed uh, environment for that, for it to grow. And it's just, again, it's just, that's where the patience comes in and really understand and, and do your homework and, and just pay attention to what's really happening out there. You know, in the, in the past, we spent very little time understanding what's happening below the soil surface. And today you have to really pay attention to what's happening below the soil surface. In some ways, I kind of blame our land grant universities. Like, you know, you add A, B and C, Put it on there, we broadcast it out there, and, and you're good to go. And, it, it, you know, it works. But what else are you doing wrong? You know, and sometimes, you know, we found out on the biological side that you can actually, with a lot of the, uh, like, nitrogen things, like, you can actually make your soil lazy. And so how do you how do you increase uh, activity in your soil? And so I think that's why you've seen such a big move toward uh, paying attention to biological activity as well. And biological activity works really well with your organic matter and things like that. So. 
again, work with Mother Nature. I, I know I sound like a greenie, but this stuff works. I mean, it's it's the whole thing. It's I'm not a believer in one size fits all. I mean, everything's different, and your soils could be different in North Dakota than, than my soils here. And but anyway, it's it's different, and so we got to figure out what what's in your soil and, and how how best to address those things that are that are working on. That's one thing. That's solutions from the land believes in is not a one size fits all, but let's keep putting tools in the toolbox. And so whatever you encounter in your farm, that there's a tool in there that you can use, but you know, it's like cover crops. I mean, it'd be silly for me to try to tell a farmer in Montana to plant cover crops when they only get eight to 10 inches of rain. The main thing is, is keep it covered, you know, where they used to, you know, you'd go one year in between just for summer fallow to suck up moisture, but it doesn't save as much moisture as having a, something on there growing at a time. So Again, all this is coming down to common sense and action and reaction and, you know, what, what works and what hasn't worked. When something works, uh, file it away and, and use it again. And if there's a way you can improve that, then go ahead. But, you know, experience really does uh, play a big part in this. Let's go back to something, Fred, you said about, you know, finding the balance where you don't make your soil lazy and really paying attention to that biology. How, how do you find that that balance where you're you're giving your soil enough to have as productive and profitable crop as possible? But, you know, how do you start to rely on that biology more and trust it? Well, I think you're going to get uh, an improvement just based on, on your practices. I'll give an example of I got a diehard older guy. He's, you know, in fact, he's in his 90s now and he. He makes fun of my no-till and cover crops. He said, you damn no-tiller. But he's a, he's a hard-nosed guy, and he's always used anhydrous ammonia and, and tillage. And so he wanted to prove to me that his way would still make more bushels. And so we did a, we did a test. We did actually two tests, one test on my land and one test on his, where I planted my seed and he planted his seed. I, I uh, put... Anhydrous ammonia, that was the first, actually, the first time we had any kind of, of tillage on my farm for many years, but he, he, he made his thing air. And so we did a, a yield test. And then I actually was trying, I did other things too. I was trying to find the sweet spot for how much nitrogen is actually necessary to get top yields and how much was, uh, you know, just wasted by having too much. Because I'm, I, you know, I worry too. I mean, I think we as, as farmers need to be good stewards too. And, and I, I worry greatly when I hear, the nitrogen that is moving off the fields gets in the in the rivers and, and especially down at the Gulf of Mexico and causes a, a big area of of, uh, of dead zone. So if there's a way we can uh, keep that and go from there, then we're we're better off. So so anyway, we getting back to the test. We we did this test and and we went with his high rate of of uh, anhydrous ammonia. And right beside it, I went with uh, uh, a low rate of side risk in 28%. And there was, there was no difference in yield between his high rate and, and my low rate. In fact, we even uh, we came very close to, to the norm yield, we even by cutting our rates by 20%. But then we went to his field where his biological activity wasn't near what mine was. And there was a huge difference. I mean, if I would just... Look at the results on that. Well, obviously, my way doesn't work, but that tells me that my farming practices put my farm in a, in a much better position for biological activity than what he had. So both tests were real, but if I would have just taken the results of a one-time test on his, I would have said, well, my, my way doesn't work. But yet, when I showed him in my field that, you know, with enough time, that factor is going to change. 
then I can show you that that over time my way works better. That's why I I keep talking about my soil as my 401k. Later on, you'll see the the value come out. It's an investment. It's investment time. But I I still say after five years, I can compete with anybody's yields based on less inputs of synthetic fertilizer, but at the same time um, using other things like cover crops and getting that. And that's the other thing too is the the biological activity is completely. Uh, change when you start putting cover crops in there because uh, one of the things that, I mean, it's not necessarily a monoculture, but if you go to corn soybean rotation and you eliminate your, your small grains, there's a lot of biological activity that leaves and never comes back. But if you, you know, you raise your cereal rye or wheat or barley, we've used barley and then any type of small grain, um, then you bring that back, even though you terminate the, the cover crop uh, sometime, you know, next spring. But that also, it, it, you're, you're growing some new biological activity out there, and it, it sort of breaks that monotony up that you, you've created with your corn and soybean or even continuous corn like some foods do. But get something in between there and let it grow, and, and it'll, it'll pay big dividends. So I think, Fred, we better go through the bullet list. I know our, our listeners are going to want to know where you include cover crops within your rotation. So you've got corn, soybean, wheat. Uh, where do you slip in that cover crop, and what are you seeding for a cover crop? Well, we, we plant everything to cover crop if we can. So every, all of our soybeans go to uh, primarily cereal rye, but we've tried different things. Actually, that's not true. We tried other, other alternatives based on what price. And so we even, uh, we even tried some um, winter peas after soybeans that was going to go to corn. And we feel that that really helped too. It, a lot of it depends on your fall. If you've got plenty of extra time, you really need six weeks after after uh, harvest to really to make an optimum difference in your in your cover crop. But that's one thing if I look at uh, cereal rye as kind of the Bubba proof cover crop because you can plant that and if as long as it germinates next spring it'll spring up and I mean it won't be long and you have eight to ten inches, twelve inches, and then you can terminate it from there. So we really push if somebody wants to try something, you know, foolproof, use cereal rye. But right after planting uh, soybeans, or excuse me, harvesting soybeans, why we always get in there as soon as we can. On the corn, a lot of times we'll fly on uh, cereal rye after the corn is tasseled. And that is kind of hit and miss. If you get a rain, it can be absolutely perfect. But if you don't get a rain, sometimes it's hit and miss. And we've had, of course, the, the naysayers, aha, uh-huh, I got you. It didn't work this year. Well, no, it didn't. And I still think we're working on, we've got to work on a better way to get cover crops into standing corn. This year, we're trying some, uh, as we uh, side-dressed our corn, where we also uh, broadcast some some rye. We don't want it to compete with the corn, but we want it to establish a, a stand so once we get the corn harvested, why it, you know, and give it sunlight and air and it'll, it'll take off. You know, I think technology will be a big part of this too. I, you know, I, I still think someday we'll have, we'll be able to, uh, to polycoat some of our, our seed and, and where it can delay, you know, uh, germination for, you know, 30 to 60 days or something like that. There's lots we can do. The problem you have with your major seed companies is, you know, your big companies like Corteva or, or Bayer, they, they concentrate on corn and soybeans and they don't spend a lot of time researching cover crops. So it's really up to your, your extension uh, from your, your colleges or your uh, another independent. There's just not the revenue to come in from developing some of this stuff. So that's another part of my battle that I'm trying to get, you know, all the extension folks to take this and run with it. <clears throat> we don't have a lot of expertise out there to, you know, especially when you get into very specific areas, what works in this area and what doesn't work. 
But again, timing is everything. The, the quicker you can get something growing in the fall, the more productive you're going to be. Now, what we've done in the spring, then, is, is we generally try to – and I, I need to change this up here. I'm a little scared about planting corn into green standing uh, cover crop because I'm worried about uh, slugs and, and things like that. So we generally uh, terminate the, the uh, cover crop in the corn at least a week to 10 days before planting. But in soybeans, we're planting right into the green. Uh, we plant green and then uh, we save a, a, a burn down. We put our, our pre-emerge herbicides on right with our burn down. So we actually save uh, a spray trip. And so that's working really well for us. And it doesn't seem to hurt the germination of soybeans at all. What I'm trying to do is, is keep the economics uh, front and center, but also the, the uh, what is it I'm trying to do and improve on. So uh, the two things together is what you have to do. And that's, you're not, you're not going to convince a farmer to do something if he's going to lose money at it. But if you can show him that he can make money at it, and the way I, the way I what I've been preaching to the, some farmers about uh, timing, you know, we have a big problem here in Ohio with uh, dissolved reactive phosphorus getting into the, uh, the Lake Erie watershed and, and causing algae blooms in, in Lake Erie. But if, I've showed them that if they use cover crops and, and no-till, that you can actually basically be a scavenger for all those leftover uh, nutrients that that uh, they never used while they grow their corn because every farmer puts on additional nutrients to make sure it doesn't run out. So, but if you could just save them, you could save up to $100 an acre. And, you know, because if you remove it, I mean, if it goes down the the, the stream, you're going to have to re- replenish it. So if you can take it up and, and scavenge it and let it go in the, in the cover crop and then terminate that, it's going to be avail- available for the next crop. So again, economics is going to be the biggest factor to get farmers to try something. And that's going to be a lot more effective than a $5 dangling, you know, to, to plant cover crops, because that's just, that's just not enough for them. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for all the time, Fred. Anything else that you would want to mention to an audience of other farmers that uh, are interested in, in building soil health? Well, the biggest thing that, that I think we have an obligation, I think is a, it's actually a privilege for me to farm. And I think I have an obligation to leave it in better shape and what I got it, and that's what I promised my father, and it is. And, and I'm handing my farm to my son, and, and I think that we have to think about, you know, when you really think about our whole existence is based on this thin membrane of topsoil for our whole uh, existence uh, as humans. And so we better do a better job than what we've done in the past. And I would just urge any farmer, you know, be part of the solution than part of the, the, the problem. And right now, a lot of farms are looked at as, as part of the problem. But we can become the solution if we do things right. It, and the bottom line is, if we do this right, it can be very economically feasible to to make more. So I just think we, we instead of looking at just the productivity of, of creating commodities, I think we need to think about ecosystem services and the value that we can produce for other things, you know, like climate or like air, like water, and all those things that uh, leave things in a better shape for the next generation. Resilience is going to be a big part of, of dealing with uh, changing weather patterns. And I think that the more we do things that enhance our soil's resilience, you know, and strength to, to take some of these adverse uh, conditions, we'll be better off. So I think farmers probably are more apt to, to think about things today because we've seen these uh, horrendous changes in, in uh, weather patterns that I think that they're, they should be willing to try something. And, and it, I'm telling you, no-till cover crops, anything that you can do to uh, keep the soil intact without stirring it, it's, it's going to work for them. They just need to try it. 
All right. Well, we will wrap up today's episode right there on that encouraging note. Thank you so much to Fred Yoder for sharing not only his philosophies on building healthier soils, but also how he's really making it work on his own farm, both ecologically and economically. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series on the Soil Sense podcast. This show was produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayouette, and myself with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you follow and subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review while you're there. You might also want to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website at farmersforsoilhealth.com. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating, and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.